Good afternoon, everybody. Or morning. We're still in the morning. It's nice to see all your faces and all your names. Um, it's just incredible uh, that something like this is possible. Um, so praise God for, for the day and the age in which we live, how we can do something that to people even 20 years ago, 15 years ago maybe, would just blow their minds that we could do something like this, separated by thousands and thousands of miles. This morning we're going to be in, in Romans 1. Romans, of course, is, uh, as you considered, one of the uh, pinnacles of Scripture, one of the pinnacles of theology. Um, and even one of the pinnacles of literature as a whole. And as we come to it, I really appreciate uh, Glenn's prayer. I'm praying that in spite of our present circumstances, we have this opportunity to lift our eyes above what's happening around us and through scripture, we can see God. I find it interesting that single words can sometimes have such an immense amount of connotation. When you say a word, words like Mount Rushmore, it's a name of a mountain, but there's so much that comes into our minds when we think of it, especially if you've been there yourself. We think of the cross. There's so much that comes along with that. And so as, I, uh, as we move towards Romans 1, if I were to say, the road to Damascus. There's a lot that can be unpacked from that simple phrase. There's a stretch of dirt on which the Apostle Paul was brought to his knees as God revealed himself to him. And God changed his life. And we know Paul's background uh, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, he was not a God-fearing man. He was a man who later described himself as breathing out hatred and murder. He was on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians. He was not a lover of God. He was... Uh, had a position of authority in his day. And by uh, an earthly perspective, he would have been seen as, as having a pretty good life. He was set up. But on the road to Damascus, something happened in Saul of Tarsus's life that completely changed him. So we're left asking the question, what changed Saul to Paul and changed his life so much? 
And that's really uh, what Romans 1 speaks of. It speaks of the gospel. It was the gospel that stepped into Paul's life. So open with me to Romans 1. And we'll just begin walking through the chapter. Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. So right from the get-go, he starts with, this is, this is what he was purposed for. This is part of his introduction. As he writes to believers in Rome, to the church in Rome, this is something right from the get-go he wants them to know, that his purpose in life is for the sake of the gospel. Verse 2, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He says this, this has been talked about in the Old Testament. This is not a new thing. Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul is he's giving a summary of the gospel. This is all part of his introduction. This is at, at the very beginning of the book of Romans. He begins talking about the gospel. Verse 5, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is Paul's from Paul and then six verses later to the believers in Rome. Verse 8, Paul starts building up a head of steam. By verse 18, he's going to be at a full-on sprint, and he's not going to stop for about 14, 15 chapters. So verse 8, he says, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged with each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation 
both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul begins building this head of steam by just expressing his thankfulness for the church in Rome. It's incredible when he says that their faith in one part of the world is being told throughout the entire world. News of, of Christianity spreading in Rome is spreading to the rest of the world. And it would make sense that Rome would be such a, a hub for something like this. We remember that old phrase that all roads lead to Rome. Information in the ancient world constantly passed to and from Rome. Stretching at different points in time all the way from England into Asia. So God has placed this church in Rome as a hub which the gospel will spread from. And Paul thanks them that their faith is being spread and news of their faith is being spread. Verse 9, we get a look into how Paul sees himself. He says, for God is my witness whom I serve. Paul sees himself as a servant. He serves with my spirit in the gospel of his son. He's a servant of the gospel of Jesus. Verse 10, always in my prayers. This is emphatic. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says, I want to come to you. He says, maybe at last I'll succeed in that. Apparently, he's, he's tried. He says, I want to come to you. Verse 11, why does he want to come to them? Come to them. He says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He says, I want to come to you. As a servant of the gospel, I am bound to come to you. And he, he really speaks of that obligation. Verse 14, he's under obligation. He says, as a servant of the gospel, I must come to you to share with you a gift. Verse 12, that is that we might be mutually strengthened. That they would encourage Paul and that Paul would encourage them. He says, I don't want you to be unaware in verse 13. I've wanted to come to you. But I've been prevented. Why is he wanted to come? So that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to come to you. The gospel needs to be proclaimed there. I want to, to share our faith with one another, to strengthen one another. Verse 14, like I said, he speaks to his obligation. He is bound as a servant of the gospel, as a servant of Jesus Christ. He must do this. And as his head of steam builds, verse 15, he says, So. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. 
all this building up. Everything from his thankfulness for their faith all the way to his obligation to preach is all rooted in the gospel. This speaks to the change of the Damascus Road. When Paul was confronted by God and God stepped in and changed him from a a dead man, a spiritually dead man, to a spiritually alive man, all of a sudden the gospel, the good news, becomes the center of his life. And so as he builds towards this great uh, expounding of theology in the book of Romans, there is one thing on his mind. As we move into verse 16, he begins speaking of this gospel. If the gospel is so important, we have to understand what it is. And there's a lot of things said about it in the book of Romans, but this is where he starts. This is the beginning of the gospel. He's eager to preach it because verse 16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He finds no shame in it. Why? For, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to Greek. To the Greek. He says we, he's obligated to do this. This is the only way to be saved. He digs a little deeper, though. Verse 17 begins with another for, another because. Why is this? Why is this the only way to salvation? And here we really get to the root of it. Verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here we encounter the the very center of the gospel. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that it reveals a righteousness whose source is God and whose nature is God. You can obviously tell, as I speak today, my focus is being gospel-centered, as what we need to be. And you hear lots of talk about being gospel-centered. You hear lots of it. And it's good. It's good. We need to be gospel-centered. But sometimes we try to be gospel-centered without actually getting to the center of the gospel. Sometimes in our lives, we consider ourselves to be gospel-centered by reminding ourselves that we're saved, that we no longer, as Christians, we no longer face eternity in hell. 
And that's a wonderful truth. But that's not the proper focus if we are to be gospel-centered. Sometimes we consider being gospel-centered to mean that, that we have peace in this life. Some people take this to the very far extremes. Some people would say that we're free from all sickness in this life. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. Instead, we enter or we end up with a theology that is human-centered. We focus on ourselves and the things that we have to gain from the work God has done. So as we speak often about being gospel-centered, about a gospel-centered life, we need to remember what that actually means. And in verse 17, Paul boils it down to one thing, and that is the fact, the truth, that God himself is righteous. If we are to be gospel-centered, we must center our lives around who God is, about his righteousness. This righteousness comes from God. So often we, we forget that. So often we neglect it. So often we are overcome with guilt in our sin that we forget who God is. So often we're overcome with the circumstances around us. So often we're overcome with the pleasures that are in this life. We begin enjoying this life to the extent that we forget our purpose in this life. And really in the book of Romans, as Paul will go on to just continually expound on the gospel, all of it is anchored here in verse 17, the truth that God is righteous. And it is in the gospel that that righteousness is revealed. It is in the gospel, in the work of Christ, that that righteousness is seen. And Paul adds, from faith for faith, is what the ESV reads. Some translate, from faith to faith, or beginning and ending in faith. This faith is, is both beginning the, our interaction with the gospel and ending it. Part of being gospel-centered is having a trust and an assurance of who God is. And once again, that means we don't center our lives on who we are. We don't center our lives on what we do. But rather, we have faith in what has been done for us. In the end of verse 17, as it is written, 
the righteous shall live by faith. Now there's a question here in this phrase. It could mean one of two things. The first is that the one who is righteous will live a life that is characterized by faith. Let me say that again. Our first option on what Paul is saying in this last sentence in verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. Option one, the one who is righteous lives a life characterized by faith. Alternatively, our second option for what Paul's saying here is that the one who is made righteous by faith shall live. I'll say it again. The one who is made righteous by faith, that person will live. Context, I think, pretty clearly suggests that the second one is what Paul is speaking to. Although the first one is definitely true for those who are saved and are children of God, there is a change in our life, and our life is characterized by faith. Well, that's definitely true, that doesn't seem to be what Paul is speaking to. Rather, he's speaking to the result of a faith in Christ's work on the cross that results in a sinner being made righteous and reconciled to God. And that because of that, the consequence of that is that they're alive. They shall live. Speaks to the eternal future of the Christian. The context of verse 16 really points us strongly in this direction, in this interpretation, because Paul had talked about the gospel being the power of God for salvation. God's righteousness revealed in Christ is the power by which we are saved. And it's because of our faith in that in that righteousness, in God's righteousness, that we now live. And to draw our minds back to Paul, where we say that on the road to Damascus, his life was changed. The change that happened was at the center of his life. Paul lived his life not in respect to earthly things, but primarily in respect to God's character, in God's righteousness. And it was his faith in that righteousness that resulted in Paul's salvation. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians I think it's good to consider the rest of Paul's life following the Damascus experience, following his salvation. 
2 Corinthians 11. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the passage. Verse 24 through 29. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he's just describing the things that he has gone through as he has traveled the Mediterranean in an effort to share the gospel. Paul writes, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Do you think that anyone is weak without my feeling his weakness? Does anyone have his faith upset without my longing to restore him? After his conversion, Paul's life involved many, many hardships. By the end of his life, we can scarcely imagine even what his body must have looked like. It must have carried so many scars. Physically, Paul was left as a broken man. Why would he go through all this? And how could he come out on the other end? Is anything resembling even a human being? When we speak of Second Timothy, don't turn there. Second Timothy is the last of Paul's writings. It's to Timothy, who is very dear to Paul. And for Paul, the book of 2 Timothy is, is the beginning of the handing off of the torch. Paul is probably about 67 years old when he wrote it. And he finally had made it to Rome. And after time preaching the gospel there, he was put under house arrest. And after some time in house arrest and continuing to write letters and continuing to spread the gospel however he could, he was then put into a much worse prison. And it's believed that the prison he was in still exists. It's called the Mamertine prison. And I believe that if you go to Rome, even to this day, you can see it. I've never been, but to hear it described is heartbreaking. Said that when you come to it, 
It's not how we would imagine a modern prison. It was only meant to hold about 35 people at a time. And when you come to it, it's just a hole in the ground. And inside that hole, there's only one door on the side of it. That door opens up to Rome's old sewage system. And historians recount how they would fill the Mamertine prison with occupants. And once it began getting too full, they would open the, the door and flush the prisoners out and kill them with the sewage. And as Paul is sitting in what is one of the worst living conditions we could even imagine, surrounded by criminals as an innocent man, he writes 2 Timothy. And he asks Timothy to come to him. He tells Timothy that he's all alone. He says that at his first trial, no one came to stand with him. All the work he's put in, a lifetime spreading the gospel. At the end of his life, he's left alone. He describes some who had been with him. One had left pursuing the world. He'd forsaken Paul. And even despite that, Paul had sent another out to minister for the gospel. As Paul is left alone, he writes to Timothy that now only Luke stays with him. And he says, Timothy, come. He says, bring my cloak for some warmth, at the very least, some privacy, some modesty. He says, bring my parchments, especially the scrolls. He's not done with scripture. And he urges Timothy, despite everything Paul had gone through, and despite the miserable state of the end of his life, by every earthly measure, what a horrible life, hard, brutal. And as he writes to Timothy, knowing that his death is coming, he says, already I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Knowing his death is coming, in great pain, covered in scars, he urges Timothy to not forsake the gospel. Read 2 Timothy with that in mind. He urges Timothy, give nothing up of the gospel. Hold fast. Everything he'd went through, and at the end of his life, as he's getting ready to die and hand off his torch of ministry to Timothy, he gives a last message, which was, it was worth it. 
It's both heartbreaking and it's wonderfully encouraging. Our lives are so much easier than the end of Paul's life. We go through pain and loss. We go through sickness. We're touched by death. There's many of you on the screens before me who I don't know. Some who I know a bit, or some who I know well, or some who I've never even had a conversation with. But it is the nature of a fallen earth that gives me the confidence to say that I know each one of you has suffered. This life can guarantee suffering. But take courage. For those who have a gospel-centered life, for those who are saved, and who focus on the character of God, no matter what life brings, we'll be able to hit the end. And we too can repeat the words of Paul, that we had run the race, we'd finished. We too can look back at our life. And if we lived it, for the gospel, to spread it, if we've dwelled in God's righteousness, we can hit the end of our life and we can say it was all worth it. Like I said, I, I don't know a good number of you. Even those who I do know, God knows you better. And so for each one of us, there's a time to take the opportunity to look at our own hearts and ask the question of, are we reconciled with God? After God created the earth, man rebelled. We chose to sin. As we gave ourselves over to sin, God's plan of redemption was already in place. And when Jesus manifest God on this earth, being both God and man, and living a perfect life, dying on the cross, suffering the wrath of God for our sins, when all that happened, it was a revealing of who God is. So I'd ask that if that is not the center of your life, make it. If you are not reconciled to God, you must be. Like Paul says in verse 16, it's the only way to salvation, to accept by faith. For those of us who are reconciled to God, 
remember that part of being gospel-centered as Christians is to not compromise the gospel. There are many people who have told me, and I'm sure have told you as well, that they want to join with you in, in spreading the love of God. There's many who use his name. Many who will say the gospel is good. But if they compromise the gospel, if they deny who Christ was, if they try to be reconciled to God outside of faith in his sacrifice, if they say that God was just a man, as not the true gospel. And as Paul writes, there is no salvation in it. So for those of us who are reconciled to God, stand firm. And you can stand firm because God is righteous. Part of the gospel being focused on God's righteousness as well. For the Christian, when we do sin, there is an answer. We are not perfect after salvation. So I urge you to look for sin in your life. And when you see it, take joy that your salvation is not based on you, but your salvation is based on God's righteousness. And that as a Christian, you have received that. And you can go before God in confession, but joyful confession, sweet confession. And that communion with God is not broken. Once you are his child, you always will be. It's important to remember God's righteousness. Let us never forget it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that um, despite everything that passes before our eyes in this life, Lord, all the, the hurt in our hearts, God, the longing to see a sinful world made right, make a broken picture whole. But we thank you that you have made that future happen. And even though it's not yet here, we can have confidence that it will one day arrive. We thank you that that confidence lies not in ourselves. God, we know that if it laid in our hands, we would fail. We thank you that all our confidence relies on your character. And I ask that we would really take to heart your character. God, that as your Holy Spirit works 
on the lives of your children that we would remember who you are. And even when we sin and we confess it, help us to never remain down in the mud. But God, help remind us of who you are so that we too can end our lives knowing that it was all worth it. And despite whatever has happened to us in this life, we can have incredible joy for what lies forward for us in the next. Father, we pray these things because of your son's work on the cross, and we'd ask these things in his name of what he would want. Amen.